The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. So good to see so many of you here on this Labor Day weekend. You get bonus points with Jesus for being here when you could be at the lake or at the beach or somewhere else. We're glad to be in worship with you. We were able to celebrate a believer's baptism with one of our students at our 9 o'clock service this morning. It was a great time of celebration, but we wanted you to know about that important event as well. This is my grandfather, uh, Marcus Carden, with my grandmother. And when I was about 12, maybe 11 years old, I had an older brother, four years older than me, and we had just gotten old enough to start mowing some grass in the neighborhood and doing some yard work to earn our own money so that now, from that point forward, we would not be relying on our mother to purchase the gifts that we were to give my father on his birthday. And instead, we would go and use the money we had earned to purchase those gifts ourselves. It was the first week of January, and my grandparents were visiting over the holidays, and my mother spoke to me and my brother that morning and said, Now, you've got your dad's gift covered because we're having his birthday dinner tonight, don't you? And we looked at each other, and being irresponsible, you know, teenagers, we had not gone and gotten the drill bits that we knew that he wanted from Ace Hardware. And my grandfather overheard this, and he said, You know, I've got to go to the store anyway. Come on, I'll take you. So we made our way to the Ace Hardware about a mile from our home. We went and found the drill bits that we needed, made our way toward the front of the the store, and there my grandfather was already in line at the checkout. And about 10 feet before we arrived behind him in line, I turned to my brother and said, by the way, I've only got like $4 and some change. And my brother looked at me and said, well, I don't, how much is that drill bit? And we began to panic because we didn't have enough money to cover that drill bit. We were about a dollar and some change short. And we were really embarrassed by that. And we didn't want to have to ask my grandfather, you know, can we have some money? You know, this is supposed to be a gift for our father, but we had been irresponsible and we were short on what we would need to pay. As soon as we got up in the line, they were starting to ring out his items. And I just remember him turning around looking at us and said, put your stuff up here by mine. So we placed it on the conveyor belt. He reached into his pocket because he didn't believe in credit cards and he pulled out a wad of $20 bills. And he bought that gift for us to take home and give to my father. Our September series is called Crosswords. And we're recognizing that the most recognized religious symbol in the world is the Christian cross, period. Out of all world religions, the most recognizable universally is the Christian cross. And there are different types of crosses. Uh, There's a Roman cross, which is just the simple vertical beam with the horizontal beam and no other decorations or design. There's the Ankh cross, which some of you may have seen. It's a more ancient form of cross that emerged from North African Christianity. It actually was the Egyptian hieroglyph Ankh, which means life. And so Christians in North Africa appropriated this sign of the cross, which corresponded with the letter from the Egyptian hieroglyph. There's St. Andrew's cross. I think I saw one of those this morning. Charlotte, you were carrying around a bag with a St. Andrew's cross on it. You were. Guilty. Way to go, Charlotte. If you've seen the flag for the state of Alabama, you know a St. Andrew's cross. It's in the form of an X, not only because occasionally the Romans did employ an X-shaped crucifixion, but also Christians adopted this, specifically St. Andrew, which tradition tells us was crucified on this kind of cross, because that is the first letter in the Greek for the name or title Christ. It is the Chi. Well, there's finally this morning just another interesting one. It's called a Tau cross or a T-cross. I have one of those as a gift, actually, from Charlotte. You are really racking it up today, Charlotte. 
It was from Tom, and you're giving your husband credit. You're so nice. Beautiful olive wood cross that they brought me back. A towel cross or T-cross actually is likely the kind of cross that Jesus would have been crucified on, a cross with the T at the very top of the vertical beam, because that was the cross that was reserved for criminals in the Roman Empire. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most recognized religious symbol in the world. Why is that? Well, historically speaking, it's pretty straightforward. The cross was a symbol and tool of Roman execution. It was used to put Jesus of Nazareth to death. But for those of us who are Christians, we recognize that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Therefore, us, therefore, there is a biblical and theological explanation. The cross somehow was used by God as the means by which Jesus experienced our suffering and death in our place and somehow initiated God's reconciliation with humanity. Christians believe that God took the most inhumane and terrifying symbol of the Roman Empire, a bloody, violent empire, and God redeemed that. And somehow through the use of that symbol, it becomes our great symbol of hope when Jesus rose from the dead two days after that Friday. Now, most of you are generally familiar with what I just shared. You may not have recognized those kinds of crosses, but you know that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the central feature and event of Christian faith. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we go back and pay attention to what He said. Because if He was raised from the dead, we cannot just disregard Him as irrelevant. We have to pay attention to what He said and did. Well, in this series, we're recognizing that if we took I just kind of surveyed this morning by handing out slips of paper and asked, how does the cross of Jesus Christ enable us to be reconciled with God? We would get wildly different descriptions and answers to that question. And some of you would draw on some biblical words and images. And so some of you would include words like atonement or payment or substitution. You might say ransom or wrath or penalty. You might say sin offering or rescue. And each one of those different words has radically different implications for how we understand what God accomplished in Jesus' death and the implications of that today for you and me as people who receive His life. What I want to suggest to you in the four Sundays of this month is that there are four key words, four different words, and each one of them helps compile together a multidimensional understanding of the cross. You see, the cross doesn't just have one purpose in the life of the world and a Christian. The cross has multiple purposes. It's like a finely cut diamond that you bring out into the light of the sun. And depending on which angle you're standing at, the reflection and refraction within that diamond appears differently to us. And today we begin with the first of four critical cross words, four concepts. It's receive. This is the first known picture of the Apostle Paul. It was found in a catacomb underneath um, the streets of Rome in the late 300s. We believe it's the first, or at least is currently the first um, known image that we have of the Apostle Paul. And if you know Paul, you know that he is the author of about two-thirds of the New Testament, roughly. He writes all of those letters to Rome and Thessalonica and Ephesians and Colossians. And I want to admit that Paul can be tough to read sometimes. So if you open up your Bible to Galatians and you start reading it, 
you're thinking, man, um, I know I'm supposed to love the Word of God. I know I'm supposed to, it's supposed to be a light to my feet and, and my path, but th- I don't know that I understand what he's talking about. I want you to know that I am sure the Apostle Paul's middle school English teacher was very disappointed in him because this man was incredibly brilliant, but he writes some of the most run-on sentences that you can read in classic literature, and that's the, that's the truth. So I thought it might be helpful to you to compile a single slide, a statement, to help you understand Paul's general worldview. And I'm really convinced that if we understand what I'm about to put on the screen, we can begin to interpret Paul's letters with much greater clarity. Saul, a devout Jew, strictly observed the law of Moses before Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Okay, that was Saul. Saul placed his faith in Jesus who appeared to him. He became Paul. He became an apostle and an evangelist to both Jews and to Gentiles. Now he teaches in the New Testament that God sent Jesus from Israel to save Israel and scandalously, talk about reckless love, scandalously, to open God's family to all people. How did he do that? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul, when he's looking at the Old Testament law, those rules and rituals, he sees the law as a gift. It was a gift to Israel. But he urges believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile, not to place their trust in their own ability to follow the rules, but rather to simply trust that Christ accomplished everything that was necessary. So Paul believes that through Jesus' resurrection, God's future future of the world, is made present and that the church, those of us who follow Jesus and are filled with His Spirit, are called and empowered to live joyfully, selflessly, and hopefully in anticipation of that future. Church is meant to be a foretaste of the future glory of God. If we can keep those things, that background and tradition of Paul in mind, almost all of his writings become much, much clearer. Well, here in Romans chapter 3, Paul is writing roughly the years 55 to 57 from the city of Corinth, most likely. And he's writing to a church that is divided. If this were the church in Rome today and Paul were to walk through these doors, he would very quickly understand that on one side there were Gentiles and on the other side there were Jews. And the Jews felt like they were God's first choice as His chosen people. And they kind of just tolerated and maybe resented the Gentiles for being included in God's new family. And the Gentiles, not surprisingly, didn't like being condescended to, and they therefore in turn resented the Jews, and it was divided. And Paul writes to unify them. And he does it not by saying, y'all should really get along, but by telling them a story of what God has done, which makes all of them in the same group, Jews and Gentiles. You hear this in chapter 3. We are made right with God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. 
for He was looking ahead and including them in what He would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just, and He makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. Now, there's a lot of information in there, but the basic message is, it isn't my moral performance or your moral performance that places us in right favor with God. Because no one, even those who tried to keep the law, can earn God's favor. Therefore, it comes to us as a gift. A gift to be received. There's a phrase that Paul uses in the very first part of what we read. In fact, if we could go back to that very first slide of the Romans 3 reading. Verse 22, he says, We are made right with God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This phrase in the Greek, pistis Christo or pistu Christo, faithfulness of Jesus Christ, appears eight times across all of Paul's letters. And it can be translated in two ways in the Greek. One is the faithfulness of Jesus or faith in Jesus. Now, what's the difference in those two phrases? Well, they can be quite profound. Are we saved because Jesus was faithful? Or are we saved based on the quality of our faith in Jesus? I believe in what remains from this passage and this message beginning in chapter 4 answers that question. Because in chapter 4, Paul begins to point toward that great patriarch of our faith, Abraham. In Romans 4, he simply says in verses 1 through 3, So what are we going to say? Are we going to find that Abraham is our ancestor on the basis of genealogy? You can tell he's speaking to the Jewish believers there. Because if Abraham was made righteous because of his actions, we would have a reason to brag, but not in front of God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does Paul mean by all of that? Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you go back to the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, Genesis in 50 chapters is divided neatly into two sections. Chapters 1 through 11, God is dealing with all creation as one big group, all corporately. But in chapter 12, God changes tactics and God calls a man and a woman, Abram and Sarai, into covenant relationship and God resolves to save the world through their family and their descendants. In Genesis chapter 12, it goes this way. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families on the earth will be blessed because... Of you. Two promises in that. You will have land, you will have descendants. And Abram and Sarah hear this promise from God, and without any previous track record to trust in the grace of God, no scripture to read about God's faithfulness to other people, it didn't exist. They simply step out on faith, they leave their home, and they go to where God begins to lead them. But three chapters later indicates that years have passed. And Abram has not been given his own plot of land yet. And he and Sarai have not been able to be able to bear children and fulfill that part of the covenant. So in chapter 15, as he's getting restless, 
we see and hear a strange vision of a promise that God makes with Abraham that informs everything we've already read in Romans 3 or Romans 4. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15, after these events, the Lord's word came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. He said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram said, Lord God, how do I know that I will actually possess it? He said, bring me a three-year-old female calf, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. He took all of these animals, split them in half, and laid the halves over facing each other. But he didn't split the birds. When the vultures swooped down on the carcasses, Abram waved them off. After the sun set, Abram slept deeply. A terrifying and deep darkness settled over him. After the sun had set and the darkness had deepened, a smoking firepot with a fiery flame passed between the split open animals. That day the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. To your descendants I give this land. Now the promise twofold, you will have descendants and I will give you this land. What in the world is this vision? What trippy plant did Abram eat that gave him this vision of a smoking fire pot and a fiery flame and inspired him to sacrifice these animals and sees this figure of God moving between them in a deep and terrifying sleep. I searched throughout Christian art to find a rendering of this and I can't find many. Nobody wants to paint this image because it's difficult to understand. The best one I could find comes from 1728. It was this image and engraving of the story of Abraham who's having his vision in the bottom right-hand part of this image. You can see there at his feet, he's kind of reclined, but yet he's seeing this vision in this deep and terrifying sleep. At his feet, you see a large butcher's cleaver and a knife which he's used to butcher and prepare these animals for this strange ritual. And he's looking back toward the source of light and source of smoke that is passing through what you see on the ground, which are those three large animals which have been divided. And now the smoking fire pot and fiery torch are passing through these animals. This is a strange vision. But in the ancient Near East, everybody who read this story would have known exactly what was happening. This is a contractual legal agreement. We read about it in the book of Jeremiah. We can read about it when nation states made covenants with one another. What they would do is that two heads of state or two families would gather together and they would agree on terms for their mutual arrangement. And they would then sacrifice these animals and both of them would walk through the middle of the two animal carcasses to forge their agreement. Now why would they do that? Well, if you've ever taken out a car loan to buy a vehicle, you know that when you go to the bank or wherever you're borrowing the money, that what they say is, we will enter into a contract with you. But it's an if-then relationship. If you make your payments on time for this amount, for the duration of the payment schedule, then we will front the money now for you to purchase this vehicle. You may drive this vehicle and use it, but we will retain ownership of it. That if-then relationship has a negative consequence, though, if you fail to live up to your side of the contract. If you fail to make your payments on time or in the proper duration, 
then we will come and take the vehicle back from you and you will lose the money that you had put into it so far. It's a contract. We engage in them all the time. Two different parties, each with responsibility to fulfill an agreed upon term. And so in the ancient Near East, they're depicting the negative consequences through the carcasses of these animals. In other words, the parties involved would walk the path between the slaughtered animals as if to say, if I do not keep my oath, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's a blood oath. And therein lies the profound hope in this story that Paul is alluding to all the way forward in Romans chapter 4. You see, I don't know if you heard in that vision, it's a one-sided covenant. Abraham doesn't walk between the slaughtered animal carcasses. Abraham is asleep. Everything in this depends on God. God walks alone between these animal carcasses. This God makes a promise. I'm going to see this covenant through. And the fact that it's one-sided tells us something profound about the covenantal character of God. I don't want you to miss this. God is saying, if I break my side of the covenant, may this be done to me. But here's the great scandalous turn. If you break your side of the covenant, may this be done to me. Put it another way, if I, marry, if I break my promise, I'll pay the bill. But if you break your promise, I will still pay the bill. That's why Paul says in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3, God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. In that strange covenantal vision that Abram's given in Genesis 15, it is a foreshadowing of what God knows God will ultimately pay because Israel and all humanity have broken our side of the covenant. God has been faithful, not only to God's promise, but God has been faithful even when we have broken ours. And I don't know in any other world religion, I don't know in any other philosophical worldview, that kind of arrangement where God takes on responsibility of faithfulness for both parties by becoming a human being in Jesus, living perfectly faithfully, and then becoming a sacrifice for our sins. You know, my grandfather, after he paid for that in Ace Hardware, I remember getting back in the car. My brother and I were very grateful that we were not embarrassed by having to ask for his assistance. He had just volunteered it. And I remember saying, Papa, we've got almost all the money that we can give you to reimburse you. And he just kind of waved us off. And he said, when I invited you to come to the store, I had intended to cover whatever you needed to buy. And we just said, thank you. And made our way home. And gathered around the family table. Ate the dinner saying happy birthday when the cake came out with the candles. And then one by one, me and my four siblings began to present our... We didn't really wrap gifts in my family because we're not like that. And so we would have just piggly wiggly like paper food bags. And, happy birthday. And I remember taking that bag to my father and him reaching in and pulling out his new drill bits and being delighted 
and looking at me and my brother and saying, thank you. I needed these. I wanted these. This is just what I needed. You know what my grandfather didn't do? Say, wait just a minute. You should probably thank me. I paid the tab for your irresponsible grandchildren. I thought I raised you better. To the... Didn't say a word. And my brother and I just said, you're welcome. And I remember looking over at my grandfather, who was that was the expression you got out of him 98% of his life. And just sitting there at the table, there was just the smile, just the, the very faintest little smile of peace. And I caught my eye and winked quickly. It brought my grandfather tremendous joy, not only to pay the bill, but to take credit and allow it to be applied to us. God in Christ not only pays our bill, friends, God takes the merits and righteousness of Jesus and applies them to our account. What I want you to hear today, the reason why I believe Paul is saying it is the faithfulness of Jesus that saves us rather than our faith in Jesus. Of course we place our faith in Christ. Of course we do. But it is not the quality or the depth of your faith that ultimately saves you. It is the object of your faith and what He accomplished. Jesus Christ, the faithful and crucified and risen Lord, who is the one who saves you. So I don't know if maybe you've never really considered it like that. That God was saying to all humanity, if I break my promise, then I'll pay. But if you break your promise, I'll still pay. That's a new revelation for you. And it makes you want to stand back in awe and lift your eyes towards heaven in gratitude to receive, receive that gift of the cross. I think you may just see beyond the clouds your heavenly Father with just a, smite, a, a slight smile upon His face, ready to credit the work of His Son to your account and mine. God, we could never plumb the depths of Your grace and riches as revealed in the life and suffering and death and resurrection of Your Son. But my prayer today is that as we think about the different words that can describe the cross of Jesus, that the very first one, the very foundation of everything is just to recognize the accomplishment was His. And graciously, the credit is now ours. And all we have to do is to receive the gift that has been bought and paid for. If there is one here today who has never entrusted in their heart and life and mind their own future and their hope to Jesus Christ, would you stir through the power of your Spirit in their life today that they might be trusted to receive that indescribable gift? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.